This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mins. This is Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag with your host, Misha Zielinski. G'day, welcome to Diplomates, I'm Misha. This week I caught up with Luke DePulford. Luke is a global human rights campaigner, particularly in the areas of modern slavery and human rights abuses in China. He's a co-founder of the Interparliamentary Alliance on China and the creator of Arise, an anti-slavery charity. Luke sits as a commissioner on the Conservative Party's Human Rights Commission in the United Kingdom and advises the World Uyghur Congress. In 2020, he was awarded the Bene Marente Medal by Pope Francis for his contribution to the anti-slavery movement, the youngest ever recipient of this award. I caught up with Luke for Chinwag about why human rights abuses matter to us all, the abuse of Uyghurs in China and what could be done, the fight for democracy in Hong Kong, why global coordination is more important than ever, and how democracies can prevail over autocracies in the long run. I'm sure you agree after listening to the episode, Luke's an incredible young man. Uh, he's done an extraordinary amount already in his career and uh, he's exceptionally impressive. So um, I hope you take away from this as much as I did. As ever, uh, if you are enjoying the show, please uh, be sure to be rating, reviewing, sharing, liking the episode on Apple iTunes or wherever you listen to the episodes and also on social media. We're doing really well. Like The show's regularly now um, in top 10 or top 20 each and every time um, an episode's released. So thank you to everyone for your ongoing support of the show. Just as a little bit of a teaser, I've got some big announcements coming up in the next couple of weeks um, about the show and some new partnerships. So keep an eye for that on social media and some really cool guests coming up too. So keep an eye out. Really big things to come from Diplomates in 2021 and beyond. And also, as ever, I do answer a question at the end of this episode. If you haven't got enough of listening to me over the hour, you get a little bit more at the end. Without further uh, jabbering from me, enjoy the episode. Luke, welcome to Diplomates. How are you, mate? I am very well indeed. Uh, Very pleased to be here. Thank you. And of course, we're recording this via the magic of Zoom. You are in uh, London, I believe. I am indeed. Sunny West London today (laughs) for the first time in in at least two months. So (laughs) very good. And uh, well, mate, look, lots of places to start, but I thought we might start with, we'll go through some of the other things you've done throughout your uh, really sort of uh, amazing career thus far, but but we might start with, you know, perhaps the most high-profile piece of work that you've got on the way at the moment, which is the uh, the IPAC, you know, the International Parliamentary Alliance on China. Uh, for those who don't know, for those who aren't super uh, China watchers, although a lot of my listeners are, um, can you maybe just sort of explain what it is um, and then we might get into how and why you set it up? Yeah, I mean, the easiest way to describe it as an international and cross-party group of politicians, backbench politicians, that have just come together to try to reform their own country's approach to China policy. In a nutshell, that's what it is. And we started off with eight legislatures. I'm not saying parliaments because, or countries, because they're not all, you know, we've got the EU as well, which is obviously across those lines, but started off with eight and we've grown to 20 legislatures and over 200 members now from all political parties, and I mean a very, very broad ideological spectrum. So that's what IPAC is. And so, you know, how is it that you, it's sort of, uh, you know, a human rights campaign, how do you end up in this pretty kind of interesting, you know, international space? And, and why did you get involved? It's actually a great question because my training is not as a China analyst. You know, I don't really come at it from that angle. I come at it almost exclusively, actually, from the human rights angle. 
um, which has led to the other stuff. So let me tell the story like this. Um, I have been working within the UK Parliament, in and around the UK Parliament, for the better part of sort of 15 years now. And for that entire period, I've been working to try to defend persecuted minorities in various parts of the world. So for all of that period of time, there's been some focus on persecuted minorities in China. That's always been uh, a motivating thing for me. Not a great specialism, but a motivating thing for me. Um, I did a lot on the persecution of Christians in China about a decade ago. Anyway, in about 2015, I had been doing some work on something called the Modern Slavery Act. I know you've had some recent legislation in Australia as well. Yep. Mold uh, along the same thing. Actually, your legislation is better than ours. Um, but in 2015, I was quite involved in trying to make that act stronger and wanted to do more on modern slavery. Ended up founding a charity, which is actually my remunerated work and what takes up most of my time. That's an international charity that works in countries of origin from where people are trafficked um, and focuses on prevention. So we do work in, in Nigeria, Eastern Europe, Philippines, India, some other countries. Now, the more you get into this area, of modern slavery and exploitation, the more you realize that there were just some massive elephants in the room. And it had been clear to me that whole period, I knew about the situation of Turkic minorities in Western China, Uyghurs and others. I'd known about that for some time. But I couldn't understand why nobody in the anti-slavery community would ever speak about it. You've got all of these NGOs, you've got all of these governments, no one would ever say, we reckon there are a million people in camps in, in Western China, is that not slavery? You know, what about these forced labor transfer schemes that are happening all over their country? Tens of thousands of people being bussed around. Is that not slavery? You know, what about this organ trafficking? For those who don't know, modern slavery and human trafficking, organ trafficking is just a category of that. It falls under that category. Organ trafficking, there's a lot of noise around that in China, a lot of disputed evidence, but a lot of noise. Why doesn't anyone ever talk about that? So it led me to look into it more and to start to say to some of my colleagues, why is this massive enslaving nation here not ever spoken about as a perpetrator of human trafficking and modern slavery? This makes no sense. And this led me more and more into a position where I came to see the, the Chinese Communist Party, particularly as, as arguably the world's biggest human rights abuser. Um, but, and this is the crucial point, not just within their own boundaries, a, a, a human rights threat to the rest of the world as well. And we can unpack that a little bit more as we go on. But that led me to believe well, this something's got to be done about this, you know, and we can't do it merely by from country to country where individual countries or individual politicians become sidelined, um, exposed, painted as uh, extremists out there in the corner. Actually, this ought to be a mainstream concern. And if the problem, if the thing preventing those people from speaking out is a lack of support, is a lack of international consensus, then that's the problem that we need to try to confront. So what we end up doing is speaking to politicians, realising um, all over the world, we were pushing an open door. You know, there's so much concern about China. And like the big, the big issue now and the great sadness for me is that that concern is everywhere. It's even in those Belt and Road countries where people are even less free to speak than they are in Western democracies. Um, but those guys don't feel able to get involved in IPAC, if you see what I mean. So we started building out the alliance from there. 
um, developing its principles, making sure that it could hang together as a very diverse group. Um, and that's what we've been on ever since. And so, you know, I suppose one of the ways to judge the success um, of these types of ventures is how much you've gotten under the skin um, of the CCP. Now, my understanding is you've been named personally as a person colluding um, with Jimmy Lay in Hong Kong, uh, who was obviously the uh, the owner of the Apple News outlet there and a very high-profile person. Have you been personally targeted in other ways? I mean, what sort of risks has this brought to you in sticking your neck out like this against, you know, an incredibly powerful uh, globally forward-projecting regime? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I, I've had for about 18 months um, some guy, and I presume it's a man, in Hong Kong, I know he's in Hong Kong because I've traced him there, um, who has created basically versions of my identity, um, mainly spoofed email addresses, but other things as well, has written to a lot of people pretending to be me. He actually successfully resigned my Conservative Party membership, believe it or not. Um, so he had gleaned some information, enough information about me to go through the process to do that. Um, I see it, I'll be honest with you, I see it as a low-level nuisance. Um, people can overplay this stuff. It's not that pleasant. I don't care and I don't see it as much of a threat. Um, it bothers other people more than it bothers me. And what I have dealt with is extraordinarily low level compared to what some other people in this country have and elsewhere. Like the Uyghurs in exile or the uh, Hong Kongers over here, you know, the kinds of intimidation that they're going through is real. I've just got some annoyance on the internet, you know. Um, so I don't take it that seriously. But yeah, I, I think I think I'm on the radar. Um, not very high up on the radar. I don't want to overblow it. You know, I'm not particularly high profile. I do a lot of the activity, you know, do a lot of the coordination. But they're much more concerned with the figureheads. This is why you see them target Jimmy Lai in the way that they do. And it's just association with Jimmy Lai that's got me onto that list. Um, you know, and the Global Times has occasionally had a pop. But it's not, it's not at the level of of many others is what i want to say so you know i don't want to come across as uh, as pleading about how much of a tough time i have i've just got some idiot who sends emails in my name um to colleagues sometimes to family members to um to my political party and and, and many others with what i hope would be transparently stupid emails however one of his email addresses was and and i i'm not joking here Saint at gmail.com. That's now, not your email address? That, no, that is not my email address. And, and the thing that was slightly annoying about it is that a lot of people responded to that, believing that I would have created that email address for myself. So that was the thing that was more upsetting, the intimidation itself. Well, I was going to say, mate, look, as a Labour guy, he might have been doing you a favour, resigning you from the Conservative Party, mate, but I certainly I won't make any comment about that. <laughs> there you go, there you go. Now, so, I mean, look, before we get into the specifics, uh, and I really want to dig into the specifics about human rights abuses in China uh, by the CCP, what does is, what is success look like uh, for the IPAC, right? So, obviously, we've got information being exchanged and coordination between people concerned. And, you know, obviously, I think a big focus is on it being bipartisan or nonpartisan, multipartisan um, in, uh, in parliamentary democracies. Um, but what does success look like in your eyes? So, let me answer that in two ways. Um, IPAC really is primarily a campaigning organization in the sense that it tries to frame the debate. So in a superficial way, success for us would be governments, executives picking up on the kinds of stuff that we're talking about. And that has happened. 
So, for example, one very good example, the revocation of extradition treaties um, with Hong Kong after the imposition of the national security law. That was an IPAC campaign. And um, the way that it worked, and, and it was a, a great affirmation of the whole model, you know, was that we realized this was an issue. We had an emergency meeting with a number of Hong Kong dissidents. And immediately, these cross-party folk who've been selected for their ability to have influence within their own parties got to work. I mean, it was within 12 hours of that meeting that the Canadians had announced that they were going to revoke the extradition treaty. Why? Because Erwin Kotler is loved by his administration and because Garnet Genuine is loved by his administration. And Garnet was able to say, this is going to be a big party political headache unless you move on it. And Erwin was saying, we should be moving on it, guys. So it happened. And that set the tone, and we did something similar all over the world, including Australia. Um, now, that is a superficial way of saying these campaigns can work when they're well deployed, strategically deployed um, in each jurisdiction. But there's a more subtle way that IPAC is starting to bring about a sense of success, which is that in more exposed economies, um, economies which are are more open to economic coercion, like New Zealand and like some others. Um, before IPAC, there hadn't been much of a sceptical caucus about China. And there isn't that much anymore. Don't get me wrong, I'm not overplaying it. But there are plans now for organ trafficking legislation in New Zealand that tries to deal with a problem in China, which were unthinkable before IPAC. So what's happened there? What's happened is that what would have looked in New Zealand like very isolated backbenchers now has the implied credibility of a global network of very high profile politicians. And that bolsters their efforts in their countries, particularly for smaller nations, for more exposed economies. So that is a, a, a big strategic win for us as well. And we're, we're, we're going to do more and more of that. So you've got kind of two levels there. You've got the campaigning victories and there have been some. And then you've got the the building up of a broader movement that helps some of the smaller exposed nations. I, I think success is starting to look like that. Um, the, the big kind of answer to that, though, is that you know, overarching success is having G7-wide strategy on China, um, a, an alliance of democracies moving together, realising the just how perilous the threat posed by China is. Um, we're a long way away from that. And, um, and I'm keen to get to that, but... Let's um let's dig into you know the human rights piece that we've sort of been dancing around. I mean, look, I think firstly the to the, the most probably egregious, and you've touched on a number, but I mean the situation in Xinjiang with the Uyghurs. I mean, perhaps firstly a quick recap of what is happening. What are the reports that we know about? What's the what are the things that are being reported? And I suppose how worried should we be, and what responsibility do we have um, in in democratic nations to act on this? So a brief overview of I think where we are in terms of the evidence, um, we have a lot of credible evidence of uh, mass extrajudicial, extrajudicial detention, which I don't think anybody uh, disputes anymore, of at least uh, one million people at any one time. Um, there is a credible evidence of forced labour, uh, which affects many of our uh, supply chains, many of our, our best known and best loved brands. Um, you have credible reports of uh, forced sterilization and birth prevention um, among ethnic groups, which again is, is not uh, broadly disputed. And then you've got a whole load of stuff which we're starting to hear about and is beginning to be corroborated that people aren't really sure about, 
you know, things like a family separation, we know that that's happening, but to what degree it isn't really known. You know, there's a lot of speculation about those numbers, but we know that children are being taken away from their families and re-educated. Um, we know that, um, that there are certainly cases of organ trafficking, how deeply they're linked to the state. Um, there is dispute about, although the China Tribunal in, in 2018 reported, and it was pretty clear, there is state-sponsored forced organ harvesting in China. Um, so uh, taking those things uh, as a broad picture, what you end up with is the consideration of whether or not these things taken together um, constitute crimes against humanity and or genocide. Um, and those things are, are crimes, international crimes with international definitions. So, um, I, I mean, I guess where the question goes is, are they crimes against humanity and genocide? And, and that's, uh, let's dig into that because, I mean, the definitions in this space are important, right? And that's been evolving quite a bit in recent times. So, can you hear that? They are hugely important. But, you know, the, the irritating thing is that it's also a bit of a misnomer because them being international crimes, we will only ever know if China has committed genocide, if there is a court judgment saying that they have. Um, and the same for crimes against humanity. So everything that we're dealing with now is, is speculative. So you'll get a load of inf information and, and a lawyer could produce a legal opinion. And the, the, the most damning conclusion that a lawyer could reach now is we think that there's a good case that, which is what they've done. So we had two very weighty legal opinions, one from Essex Court Chambers, who were subsequently sanctioned by the Chinese Communist Party, who produced a very weighty legal opinion, which concluded that there was a very, very good case to be made, that China had committed both crimes against humanity and genocide, on the basis that the grounds of the Genocide Convention and the grounds required the legal thresholds for um, crimes against humanity were clearly met, and more importantly, that the intent was there. And this is the problem with genocide. It's um, Establishing intent is the problem. It's an extremely high bar. Um, it's very rare. And for that reason, people sort of shy away from it, understandably. Um, the problem, and, and let me allow me to sort of digress ever so slightly on this. The problem with genocide is that we are bound not just to punish the thing, you know, signatories to the Genocide Convention are bound to prevent it as well. So you are bound to prevent and punish genocide. And it is not possible to prevent genocide if you are unable to use the word genocide without a court determination, without having prosecuted somebody. Genocide prosecutions, bear with me, take decades, decades. Everyone will be dead by the time anyone in China is prosecuted for genocide, if and when they are. So the question for us as democratic states, and this is the really difficult conundrum, becomes, when do you act to prevent a genocide according to your legal duties, your duties under the Genocide Convention? When do you act to prevent it? My argument would be, if you have very weighty tomes from numerous, very diverse international sources saying that it seems as if the grounds for genocide are met, and it seems as if there is intent, or at least some evidence of intent, I believe that triggers our duty to prevent. And the problem is that we're not doing any of that. So we're hiding from it. People don't like these duties. They don't like the genocide convention. Like in the UK, our policy is not to use the word genocide at all until there is a court determination. Hence, we failed to use the word in association with what was happening to Yazidis and 
other religious minorities under Daesh about the clearest and most obvious genocide in recent times, in my view, haven't used it in relation to what's happened to the Rohingya, didn't use it back in Rwanda, didn't use it around the time of Srebrenica. You know, the, the UK has never succeeded in recognising a genocide while one was ongoing. Why? Because of this policy, which requires everyone to be dead in order to act. You know, so my big argument around it would be, guys, let's not get too caught up in whether or not we believe that this legal threshold is met. What we have to do is say, all right, are there reasonable, diverse, independent, objective um, analysts who believe there is a case that there may that there may be genocidal acts taking place in that part of the country? Okay, in that case, governments have a very, very strong duty to try to act to prevent. Um, that is the duty placed upon us by the Genocide Convention, and we're failing in that duty right now. And so then what does action look like? So leaving aside this sort of complexity around the you know, the, the relationship between the legal avenues and the politics, what does actual action look like? So let's say we were to sort of, and, and look, I mean, we know that uh, the CCP's attitude to international uh, judgments, you know, of the, of the law of the sea, et cetera, with uh, the South China Sea annexations are pretty dubious anyway. What does action look like? What does meaningful um, uh, intervention look like when dealing with you know this question um, of uh, exploitation, the way you've described it, the Uyghurs? Um, again, a very different question to answer, and the reason being that no one's ever done it. So while you've had the the US take a very different approach to the rest of the world, they've made political what we would call political determinations of genocide rather than legal ones. So the UK defers to the legal system. The US is happy to say we reckon it's genocide. But because they have a different relationship to the Genocide Convention, it doesn't lead on to the kind of corresponding action that we might expect. So after the Yazidis, stuff happened, don't get me wrong, but not in a way that we would have normally framed it. So let me answer it like this. Um, the the ICJ, so the, the International Court of Justice um, Bosnia case, was quite clear. It tried to probe this and say, you know, what are countries' duties? What is actually triggered here when countries believe that a genocide might be developing? It's very, very clear. It says that it has to use all available means to try to bring it to an end, all reasonable available means. And that's a very, very broad uh, gambit there. You know, like, what does that mean? Well, I would say, what it doesn't mean is deepening bilateral trade with that country, which is what the UK is currently doing. You know, Dominic Raab on the one hand says they have industrial scale human rights abuses. Those are his words, that's a quote. And then on the other hand, we find that we are reopening economic and financial dialogue and a, a JETCO economic summit with them. That is not consistent. You can't do that. That makes no sense. That is not consistent with our international obligations. So it doesn't mean that. What could it mean? Well, it could well mean all the way, anything along this very, very long spectrum of uh, possible bilateral and then multilateral actions, which start with, I think, uh, certainly uh, reducing uh, dependency, move into um, punitive uh, economic sanctions, and then into multilateral action, multilateral sanctions. And then there are a whole load of other actions that we'd never want to talk about and hope never, never got to. Um, 
you know, it, up to and, and including uh, some degree of humanitarian intervention, which I wouldn't advocate, and um, certainly, certainly not now. But that ought to be on the table and has been on the table in the past when people have been talking about mass atrocity crimes. Okay, so not talking about China, but talking generally, humanitarian intervention has been something which um, has been, generally speaking, conceptually on the radar. As if you look at Bosnia, for example, in the nineties, right? Or, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So nuclear option, um, very, very worst case scenario. This is something which has been on the radar for the international community. I wouldn't advocate it for China, but you see what I mean? There's a very broad spectrum. And right now I'd look at the international community and say, are you doing that stuff? And the answer is a, a resounding no. So, I mean, it sounds like you, you would probably advocate for things like tariffs on, you know, the cotton produced from Xinjiang, you know, which is uh, 85% of China's cotton production comes from there and an enormous amount of that obviously goes into, uh, you know, into global uh, textile production. Um, so, you know, the brands that we use, that, that seems like an obvious place. And you see more pressure coming on companies like that, like H&M, for example, and, and you know, Nike and others. But a little bit more of a specific example there's a lot of talk about the, you know, the Winter Olympics coming up in Beijing. What's the world's obligation here in terms of boycotting it? You know, you've seen it coming on the radar of the United States. Nancy Pelosi's talked about partial boycott, which is essentially athletes would go, but dignitaries wouldn't. How do you see that? Given that, you know, Olympic Games, one, are a celebration of humanity and two are, you know, arguably, you know, uh, opportunities for propaganda and global sort of, you know, soft power projection. So the Olympic Games, uh, part of the reason that they're so resistant to any kind of involvement or capitulating to pressure around human rights abuse is um, is, is very reasonable. You know, um, having this global show of unity is important, and they have a long history of doing that. You know, the the, the Olympic truce is a very ancient thing. It was supposed to be a way of warring nations, allowing people to get to the games. And um, back in ancient times, the Olympic truce is a uh, is very old. Um, I think the argument around what's happening in Western China is that, you know, on this, let's say, sliding scale of abuses, um, some things are simply beyond the pale and uh, and enabling a, a big international sporting event uh, implies credibility, imputes credibility to that nation that it does not deserve um, and arguably makes the situation worse and, and imperils them. So this is an argument that I think now has, uh, has real uh, traction and, and can't be denied. There is a lot of opposition to an outright boycott. So IPAC is, is going to be doing something on this fairly soon. Um, but even within this broad alliance of um, politicians, um, there is disagreement. There are people who wouldn't want to punish athletes who have spent four years training for something. It's not their fault you know, that the IOC has decided to do this in, in Beijing. Why should they suffer? And and you can see that there is a strong argument there. So um, some of us who are working on this saying, started saying, well, why don't we move the games then? It shouldn't be there. There are lots of places that could put on a Winter Olympics and make short notice. What's wrong with that? Um, and then the IOC said that they weren't considering moving it. So <laughs> I think where it's moving now is towards a diplomatic and commercial boycott, which is what uh, Nancy Pelosi was talking about and which I think enjoys pretty broad consensus. And, and I'd be surprised if that didn't uh, end up having major traction with executives. But, but I'd say this, in 1980, 
the Soviets invaded Afghanistan. And the response to that was the US trying to lead a boycott of the games, which were in Russia, um, well, in, in, in Soviet Union. And that boycott had huge success and people have forgotten about this. Muhammad Ali went around the world trying to persuade nations to stay away. He was quite successful. And some of these videos were quite hilarious. He was sent by Jimmy Carter and he went knocking on doors in, in African nations saying, don't go to the Olympics. <laughs> um, so it, it, I, I would just say people are looking upon this as some kind of really awful thing. Um, we've done it before. We did it with good reason before. It resulted in a, in a counter boycott at the next Olympic Games, by the way, in 1984. So it was all a bit of a mess. Um, but I would put the question pretty simply. Is what the Soviets did to Afghanistan worse than what the Chinese government is doing to Turkic Muslims and other minorities in northwest China? My strong response to that would be no. And if it is, show me the evidence. Because I don't understand why two million people in concentration camps isn't bad enough for us to think again about legitimizing the state which is perpetrating it. Now, specifically talking about the the, the state, you know, the CCP, you know, the party apparatus itself, I mean, one other area of, uh, I suppose, retaliation that democracies can impose and been broadly used against the Russians uh, is this concept of the Magnitsky type acts where, you know, you essentially sanction uh, you know, senior members of a regime for particular acts and prevent them from being able to travel, or move money, et cetera. I mean, do you advocate for those types of things? I mean, that would be a more targeted way uh, of dealing with some of these challenges, but of course brings enormous uh, you know, diplomatic risk. Yes, I do. And you're right. It does bring diplomatic risk. It's, it's quite funny, actually. Um, while we were pushing for the genocide amendment over here in the UK, um, which was a way of trying to get through this this policy difficulty around genocide in the UK because you know, there won't ever be an international court case dealing with China because China will block it. But that's a whole other point. But when we were dealing with that, I know that there were internal government conversations saying, should we just bring forward these Magnitsky sanctions? And the response within government was, that would be worse for us than this genocide amendment. You know, So you're right. I, I think a huge diplomatic uh, bounty is placed on the Magnitsky a style approach. And that's why I believe that they can be so valuable. Um, but, and I've said this to, to Bill Browder, and I don't think he would disagree, they are not a substitute for multilateral or bilateral action led by governments. You know, and they can't be, they can't just be an excuse to get on with dealing with um, a perpetrating government, a government which is perpetrating human rights abuse, because you've just kind of signaled singled out one of them if we know anything about the chinese communist party it's that these people don't act unilaterally as if it was their idea to to pursue genocidal policies in the uyghur region i mean come on give me a break the the, the whole argument being made here is that this is a governmental approach so for us to back magnitsky and only magnitsky and say oh well that gets us off the hook for pursuing proper um bilateral sanctions or multilateral sanctions is a real cop-out. And I think we need to be clear about that. And so one thing I'm sort of curious about, I mean, I sort of talked about it a little bit and you were um, very sort of, uh, I think, brave in the way you dismissed concerns, but you can see governments being afraid of taking on the might of the CCP, right? So how do we deal with this challenge where, 
um, you know, the CCP is very belligerent when it wants to be about punishing those who don't acquiesce to the party line. Now, be that uh, uh, Chinese nationals or diaspora living in uh, Western nations or indeed governments like in, currently in Australia, we've got enormous trade sanctions being posed uh, on, a, on Australia as a result of a number of foreign policy and domestic decisions we've made in protection of our own sovereignty. How do you stand up to that? I mean, is it that little bit of that strength in numbers piece you talked about with New Zealand or are there other ways? Um, yeah, I think there are other ways, and, and you're right to point it out. Uh, people forget very easily that um, particularly members of the Chinese Communist Party abroad are subject to party discipline. They can't just go about their um, day integrating into the society in, in a way that you would normally expect. Um, and even those uh, Chinese nationals who are not members of the CCP are still, I mean, uh, and countless examples of this, um, monitored for their behaviour. So I give you an example. I mean, just this week, we were talking to the Master of Jesus College, Cambridge, about various things that have been happening there. It's a controversial relationship between that college and China, which they strongly dispute, but you know everybody else thinks that they got too cosy. Anyway, um, a deputy foreign minister at the, at the Chinese embassy to the UK keeps turning up at their events um, and basically intimidates people, you know, puts... Um, uh, provoke, uh, provocative, pr- provocative um, stuff in the chats on Zooms and makes careful notes of who's turning up and that kind of thing. You know, in that sort of situation, the presence of somebody like that is it is in direct conflict or tension with the whole notion of academic freedom, particularly for those students who who don't enjoy it, can't possibly enjoy any sense of academic freedom if they <laughs> if they're having. Um, people like that breathing down their neck. Now, the reason I raise that example is it shows the the depth of the uh, malaise here and what has been, I think, Western democracies very much asleep on the watch while this kind of stuff has happened. The reason I don't really like this narrative, and I speak about, I, I speak from the perspective of somebody who politically is quite across the spectrum myself, you know, one of the reasons that, that know, having me try to maintain IPAC has kind of worked, I really, I really hate this whole reds under the bed stuff, you know. Um, and I do not want to be a part of any sort of initiative which promotes uh, suspicion of people who look like they have uh, Eastern or Southeast Asian heritage, which has become a big, big problem, particularly around coronavirus origins. So I, I sort of hate this stuff, but at the same time feel that we have to recognise what is actually going on here. We haven't really found a vernacular and a way of doing that, which sufficiently separates out the party from people, um, because it's a very difficult thing to do. And, and the party itself, the Chinese Communist Party itself, is spending so much political capital and effort in conflating those things. Yeah. You know, the nationalistic narrative exists for that purpose. You know, the, uh, whether or not hand chauvinism is as strong within the Chinese Communist Party or not is, is, an, is another question. But the fact that there's been a resurgence in it and, and that sort of ethno-nationalism is unquestionable. And you see that playing out. So that puts us in a tough position, you know. What are we supposed to do in response to that? Well, I, I think the first thing is that if we're going to act against foreign interference and if we're going to act to protect uh, our critical infrastructure, but then also our institutions of national life, you know, our 
our academic framework and the, and the rest of it. If we're going to do all of that successfully, we have to do that in a way which bears responsibility for the possible consequences of, of those actions. So what I've been advocating for, and this is a long way of saying, like we actually need to ensure that there is a very deep-rooted anti-racism work that goes alongside of it. Unfortunately, that's a position that we've been put in by the Chinese Communist Party, but I would strongly argue for us seeing those things as going in parallel. It's too much of a risk otherwise. And, and it is increasingly difficult because the CCP sort of claims agency and ownership and demands fealty from the entire Chinese diaspora around the world. And, of course, Chinese communities are not monolithic, but it is difficult when the, the regime itself seeks to blend it to, as you sort of touched on now. You know, we spent a lot of time talking about um, Xinjiang, but I actually want to talk about you know a particularly kind of uh, you know a region of of of, of China that um, is you know it's obviously closely aligned to the United Kingdom traditionally relating to Hong Kong. I mean, given everything that's happened there in terms of the you know the crushing um, of the democratic sort of uh, movement in, in in Hong Kong, and they've it's unfortunately accelerated under the you know the cover of coronavirus. I mean. Do you still think that you know the UK or the Commonwealth has a special responsibility, and what is the role um, of the UK, particularly, but also nations like Australia, in either pushing back on what's happening there or offering safe haven to those that want to get out? So the UK has particular responsibilities, not just because of the that long-standing relationship through colonialism and then afterwards. Um, the we negotiated a treaty you know, the Sino-British Joint Declaration, and, and that treaty puts an obligation upon us to safeguard and to protect Hong Kong's way of life and autonomy. So those are very strong obligations that are on us. Now, the UK believes that it has discharged those obligations through the BNO scheme, um, which, for those who don't know, the British National Overseas Passport Scheme. So this is kind of complicated, but there was a there was a sort of um, category of national, British national in Hong Kong for a while. So they had passports. And what the UK has said is that those people who are eligible for BNO status, British national overseas status, can come and live in the UK and they have a pathway to citizenship. So in terms of uh, like an immigration scheme for the UK, it is extremely generous, but it does nothing to uphold the way of life and autonomy of the people of Hong Kong being rude about it is basically a surrender tactic. Uh, the UK hasn't done anything to hold China to account for totally destroying that treaty. And here's the key point, and this is why it affects Australia. That treaty isn't just the custody of the UK, it was lodged at the United Nations. So all of the nations of the United Nations should bear responsibility for its implementation. There have been no efforts to hold China to account for breaking that treaty at the UN. No one's done anything on that. So what I would say is that, yeah, okay, so a lifeboat scheme, better than nothing. Of course it is. And for democratic nations to come together and to almost share the load, because it's quite a lot of people who want to leave, between them, I think is a good thing. Like the BNO scheme has big gaps as well. And Australia could be one of the nations filling those gaps. For example, the BNO scheme doesn't apply to anybody born after 1997. That's most of the people who are on the streets of Hong Kong protesting. Sorry, so, it's a youth-led movement, yeah. So who is the, who's the scheme for in the UK? And who's going to pick up the slack for those people? Where are they going to go? 
you know, those questions have been posed and not, in my view, adequately answered yet. But the lifeboat scheme is basically accepting that Hong Kong has been destroyed by China. And the only way for the people there to live anything remotely akin to their previous lives is to leave. Well, not good enough. You know, yeah. we're running away from holding this nation accountable. And it's our legal responsibility. Australia's too, because they are they're a part of this um this 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 group of nations which is supposed to uphold and and enforce the sign of British Joint Declaration. So yeah, there's a responsibility, not just UK and Commonwealth, but UN. Now, one of the things and we've sort of touched on it, but you know. One of the sort of talking points from the CCP um, when talking, you know, when the issues of, uh, of uh, you know, uh, domestic uh, human rights abuses in China are raised, either they're denied or they sort of devolve into whataboutism, right? So, you know, they like to place uh, our own sort of somewhat dubious, obviously, records in the West historically, you know, whether it be British colonialism or in Australia, it's treatment of Indigenous or white Australia policy, or even recently uh, in Germany, saying to the Germans, "Well, you guys would know what genocide looks like, right?" So, how you know, how I suppose how important is getting our own house in order? But then also, how do you ensure that you know these sorts of arguments don't devolve into tit for tat whataboutism and, and actually still focus on the um, on, on the stamping out of the behaviour that we uh, have been discussing. Uh, I think the the arm the answer is simple logic really, and and governments growing a pair and being a bit brutal about it. Um, look, if if their answer to uh, we've got human rights abuses is you had historic human rights abuses, then the answer has just got to be logical. It's like that's irrelevant. Yeah, that has absolutely no bearing whatsoever on your existing human rights abuses, and it certainly does not. Um, <laughs> it certainly doesn't diminish your culpability. So actually Reinhard Butikoffer, who's an MEP co-chair for IPAC and, um, and a Green, very senior Green, but also the EU's point person on, on, on China, sort of let, heads up whatever the, um, the committee is there on China. Um, and it's great, like he really knows China. His answer to this was, was really interesting. You know, he gave a quote that said um, something along, along the lines of, you know, the Holocaust cannot be used as a political football for rhetorical gain. You know, if you believe that invoking that is going to absolve you from your responsibilities or is going to somehow deflect from the fact that you still haven't allowed in any kind of independent investigation into, into Xinjiang, you're mistaken. I think that's the right line. I think we just have to be a bit firmer about it and brutally logical in saying, it's got nothing to do with it, you know. <laughs> and so zooming out a little, you know, we sort of, you know, the, the big, I mean, we've talked about human rights, which is a sort of, uh, you know, it's a, a global, um, you know, universal sort of principle, but they are constructs traditionally, at least in the modern sense of, you know, democracies and liberal democracies. And so what we're really seeing in many ways here is a contest between, you know, autocracies and, and democracies. And I suppose... You know, the alliances you're talking about are alliances indeed amongst democracies. You've sort of discussed deepening and broadening these alliances and, you know, not necessarily in a Cold War sense, but certainly, you know, nations with mutually aligned interests working together. But are you confident that democracies can prevail um, against autocracies? Because a lot of people, you know, when you look at 
arguably the way perhaps you know uh, China's handled um, you know, COVID versus you know the, the perhaps more um, challenging way it's been dealt with in you know European nations, United Kingdom and US. Um, you know, how, how do you how do you see that challenge? Um, well, I think democracies can and and will prevail on the basis that the the the, the market based system um, is far more responsive to them. You know, the free flow of information, um, the, the 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 notion of uh, of trust and of relative independence from the government are really essential commercial tools. Um, and when you remove those, it doesn't work that well. I think um, for that reason alone, quite apart from the fact that people prefer freedom, is uh, one of the reasons that um, even the, the, the so-called might of the Chinese Communist Party is no match for it. And you can see this. They've attempted to create their own financial centres outside of Hong Kong and really struggled. Why? Because they lack the core ingredients for uh, successful uh, market flow. It, it's just, I, I can't see it uh, happening for them in, in a much broader sense. And it's why that they've taken the strategic tech they have in terms of expanding their power. Now, um, I, I, I think things will probably get a little bit worse before they get better with the current situation, um, but they can't continue forever. It, it's a bit difficult thing to, pre to predict in the context of the CCP just because it's... Um, it's very close and, it, and it's messy. And, you know, my read of it is that uh, the decisions which are being made at the top level of the CCP, strategic decisions, but especially diplomatic decisions, are more and more wrongheaded, um, which is quite typical if you look at the history of, of authoritarianism, quite typical of a pattern um, whereby the worse things seem to get, the smaller the circle of advisors gets and the worse the mistakes. Yeah. Um, that's kind of where we are with the CCP right now. Now, I'm not predicting that the thing will will will, will die anytime soon, um, but it is not in a healthy place. Yeah, and a lot of analysts say, you know, look, when you look at the, the the regime of Xi Jinping, a lot of it's driven by paranoia. Firstly, the paranoia of how his family was removed um, yeah. originally, and then the way the way he was pushed right to the fringes. He deeply understands what it is to be removed from power, and so that paranoia drives so much of the decision making. But what is interesting, notwithstanding all the troubles we've seen um, in the United States for the last four years, that China has driven so many of its neighbouring nations and nations around the world back into, I suppose, not the arms of the Americans, but certainly wanting to deepen alliances, which is kind of instructive, really, when you look at. The behaviour has been counterproductive, um, notwithstanding it's it's how concerning it is. Yeah, very much so. And I mean, the, the best example of this is the fact that they managed to destroy, um, or at least put on ice, their comprehensive investment agreement deal with the EU, which Germany had pushed for like hell. They pushed so hard yep. for that. You know, they couldn't have pushed harder. They rammed it through at the last minute, and the European Parliament were going to have to go along with it. Well, they've somehow managed to unite the entire European Parliament against them, who have just voted through a resolution saying this thing isn't going to happen until you lift the sanctions. Well, I mean, that's a profound act of, of self-harm from China's yeah. point of view, which can only have occurred within the context that you set out. So uh, for those reasons and many more, um, you know, it's not going to be around forever. And I, uh, I am one of those people who are not that... Um, 
not that backward about being forward about saying that uh, that party regime is a bad thing and the sooner it's gone, the better. Now, do you hold out hope for, you know, I mean, there was always this sort of uh, the thesis, you know, China will get rich and then it will become democratic. And then a lot of people have subsequently, um, it, some people are hanging on to that thesis, but increasingly people are sort of being persuaded by the behaviour and the evidence. But do you believe, I mean, some people also argue in that context, you know, that uh, Asian societies or Confucian societies don't want democracy or have no history of democracy. They're more comfortable in, uh, you know, in sort of more centralised governing or, or or sort of totalitarian type regimes. Do you accept that firstly? And then do you think that, you know, democracy in China is possible? Uh, it's certainly possible. And that's one of the reasons that Taiwan is so viciously hated because it's a clear Absolutely. example of that. Yeah. Um, now, I, I would I, I would route the conversation slightly different. I want to frame it slightly differently. Um, if you look at the kinds of things that Deng Xiaoping said, um, it's quite clear that that tendency towards opening up in democracy, but also to human rights, is not completely alien to the people of China. Um, you know, some of the people who played a part in the draftsmanship of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights were Chinese drafters. This is this is often forgotten about. So we need to be careful of playing too much into the narrative that there is a sort of a Confucian or sort of ethno um, ethnocentric uh, value system which is going to project something new upon the world which will bring about a more stable and successful civilization because that is just a part of that um, nationalistic narrative. Uh, it does, it's not actually true. And the history of China is way more complex than that, with lots of differing strands of, um, of, of thinking. What I would say is that the Human Rights Project, um, and this is why you know, we have to wake up and smell the coffee, the Human Rights Project, you know, the principles of, of universality around uh, individual human dignity and everything that flows from those, they were tolerance, you know, all of the kinds of principles that undergird the, 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 the Universal Declaration and then the principal human rights instruments of, of the UN, they were forged in the aftermath of the Holocaust because people didn't want that to happen again. Uh, they were very, very hard won. What we see now is a Chinese Communist Party which wants to remake the hierarchy of rights, You've very explicitly stated, with economic and social rights at the top. And the sort of fundamental inalienable rights that we talk about and which were supposed to be about the founding purposes of the whole bloody thing at further down the hierarchy, subjugated to economic and social rights and security, that kind of stuff. Um, rights to security, terrifying things, which they would, through the, the lens through which they would justify what they're doing in Hong Kong and elsewhere. Now, as Trump has retreated from the UN and a number of other nations, rather than engaging and realizing, you know, this is our common project, you know, the genie's out of the bottle here and we've got to protect this thing, these custodian in institutions for, for what we believe. Um, that vacuum has been filled by the CCP and they are very successfully undermining that institution and changing it into something else. We must not make the mistake of saying that the thing they're trying to change it into is more compatible with Chinese people. I think that's false. I think it is more compatible with a particular ideology pursued by this particular government, which wouldn't have even been pursued, you know, 15, 20 years ago um, by, by Chinese government. So let, let's be really careful and nuanced about that narrative, I think, and, and distinguish as much as we possibly can, but also advocate 
for people waking up because use it or lose it with the UN, you know, it's, it's well on the way out. So I'm curious. I mean, you've sort of talked about the UN there, um, you know, that you've still got hope for it or, you know, not to say it's quixotic, but, uh, you know, what we're seeing more of, you know, is what so-called mini-lateralism where you see like things like the quad where, you know, India, Japan, Australia and the United States or, you know, perhaps there's talk of a D10 where you have the democratic nations of the G7 there. Um, do you still favour going through the, 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 I suppose, the core multilateral institutions, notwithstanding the, their dysfunction? I think we need both, but we need to be very wary of creating lots of mini sort of UN 2.0, 3.0, 4.0. The reason being that the genie is out of the bottle with the UN. We've created a huge multinational institution with huge power and huge legitimacy. And if we retreat from that, it'll just be remade in a slightly different image and an image which isn't uh, faithful to its founding purposes. Mm. That is what's happening at the moment. So I, I wouldn't say let's not do these smaller things. I think we should, but we shouldn't do them to the detriment of, of the UN, and we certainly shouldn't let them be an excuse for a retreat from the UN. And so just one last question before we get to the uh, trademark final uh, hokey uh, question of this show. But, uh, you know, you're someone that, and we talked about verifiable things out of uh, Xinjiang about what's happening there, but you're someone that, you know, obviously is anchored in fact. How do we promote, you know, th this challenge between, you know, and again, it's principally between authoritarian and totalitarian states, but it also exists within uh, Western uh, discourses about misinformation, um, counter-narratives and the ability to discern what's true and what is not. And, uh, you know, COVID's a great example where China has been desperately trying to put out counter-narratives about what's happening. And you're seeing even in, 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 um, in Europe with Russian mis misinformation campaigns relating to vaccine hesitancy. You know, how do we actually promote that? And, you know, yeah, how do we secure ourselves against, um, you know, misinformation campaigns in that sense? Um, honestly, I think it's extremely difficult. Uh, I don't have the answers to it. And there, it manifests in so many ways. So, for example, right now, there's a bit of a row going on within the with, within the Uyghur community about a couple of testimonies that came out, um, which are exaggerated. Um, now, apart from being a bit of a gift to the Chinese Communist Party, <laughs> part of the problem is that there is this huge onus on journalists and the people reporting this stuff to do what they can in terms of verification. And it is extremely difficult for all kinds of reasons to tell the difference between um, not just fact and fiction, but fact and then a little bit of embellishment, you know, which is often what you're dealing with. Now that's just in microcosm, a problem within the Uyghur community. When you start talking about broader disinformation, like the kind of disinformation which has been pumped into Taiwan recently, um, how do you deal with that kind of thing? I don't think that we've got a very coherent uh, plan for it all, to be honest. Um, luckily, I would say that right now, um, from the stuff that that I see, it's not really sophisticated enough um, in the West to claim many hearts and minds. So you've probably seen this phenomenon of a load of Westerners who get paid money, presumably, I don't know where from, but it's got to originate with, with the Chinese government somewhere. Uh, to make apologetic videos about what's happening in China and how great China is. Sure. I mean, it's just not persuasive. It's not going to persuade anyone, as far as I'm aware. And if it does, I'd be really surprised, you know, and a load of inflated viewing figures and likes. Um, none, of it's, um, none of it's particularly real, but it will get more sophisticated. So 
I'm not answering your question particularly well. And the Russians are much better at it than the uh, the CCP, right? They're far more sophisticated in their psyops. Um, I mean, I'm not suggesting you have the answer, but I'm just kind of suppose I'm, I'm. I guess I'm more curious about how much does it undermine the work you do specifically, because you know you'd be, as you said, you've got this challenge where you're trying to verify things, but then actively being undermined at the same time. And people, when when everything's true, nothing's true, and that's kind of the aim, right, of uh, of these regimes. I, I I would say I don't think it's got to that level of sophistication, certainly in the UK yet, as far as I've seen. Um, the bigger the bigger threat is the threat from within, um, which comes from people who have predicated their entire careers on sort of being nice to China or uh, this idea that China is going to open up. You know, I'm, I'm, not trying to, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to say that these people, they're not bad people. Um, and there are a lot of people, mainstream folk, who believe that that would happen. The difficulty is that quite a number of people in positions of power now are really hitched to that wagon and they won't let go. So they're the people talking about the need to have a more nuanced relationship with China, not to view everything through the prism of human rights, this kind of stuff. You can't have a bilateral relationship which is just about human rights. This is the argument they're trying to mount now and it'll have some traction. They're more of a threat because what they do is they absolve the UK or other nations from having to act. They give them a reason not to. And um, at the same time as diminishing the scale of the concerns. So what you will find in the UK is that the guys who talk about nuance um, are also the most sceptical about the evidence. So I think disinformation plays into that a little bit, for sure. Um, but I actually believe that uh, we, are, we harm ourselves way more than disinformation campaigns are harming us. Well, and that's a really great place to, I mean, I think you and I can talk about uh, this stuff for a, a long time, uh, but I, you know, I'm going to have to let you get on with your day. But I can't let you go without answering you know, the textbook uh, question I ask every guest here, which is the uh, Diplomates Barbecue question. Now, I'm sure you're a little bit horrified at this prospect as a poem, but it's, uh, you know, as a foreign guest, you have to invite three Aussies, you know, so three convicts from the Antipodes to a barbecue at Luke's. Uh, who are they and why? First of all, let me clarify, can they be dead? Yes, they can definitely. If that makes you happier, then they can absolutely be dead, mate. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So all right, my, my first, and this is, this is very sincere because um, this is one of the, one of the people I, I admire most in Australian history, but not just in Australian history, but anywhere, I'm going to go with St. Mary MacKillop. Now, I, know, I don't know if this is a name that means much to you, yeah, but... It does, actually. It does, yeah. Incredible woman who founded the, the, the Josephite Order um, who was a bee in the bonnet of anybody who tried to hold her under authority, remarkably uh, entrepreneurial woman who gave her life to those who were suffering. I think she was, she's amazing. And the Aussies should make more of a noise about her, in my view. 19th century um, Australian saint, canonised in 2010 when I was living in Rome. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm a fan. Um, now, the next, I was, I was kind of joking about this, but I thought, I, no barbecue is uh, complete without a bit of an argument, and I would I would love to sit down this this controversial guy, uh, Jeff Rabi. You know. This oh guy? yeah, right. The former uh, ambassador. Oh mate, you guys would get on like a house on fire. He's uh, a noted uh, China dove, if I can put it in those terms. Yeah. Absolutely, um, but uh, I think uh, I found it very interesting that when uh, China was retaliating against Australia by 
imposing ridiculous tariffs on your wine. Um, his wine, line of wine, because he's also an entrepreneur and has his own vineyards, um, was uh, one of the one of the lines that that didn't suffer. It, he unfortunately didn't have very heavy tariffs placed upon him, and I and I leave it that to was just anyone. A coincidence, mate. I'm sure that was just, just a coincidence. That's a coincidence, but um, I I quite like to have an argument with the guy. Um, and Over some wines, no doubt, but uh, he can bring it. Not not some of his wine. I don't think I've heard bad things. Um, <laughs> um, and then finally, it, it, this was a toss-up, you know, between uh, uh, Nick Cave and, and Kim Kitching. But I'm going to, at, at the risk, at the risk of seeming as if I'm brown nosing one of my uh, uh, co-chairs, I just think Kim Kitching is a lovely person, and I, I I'd love to have a barbecue with her, which I haven't been able to do yet. Well, I know Kimber very well. She's a, a listener of the show, so I'm sure she got a thrill. But uh, you know, a senator and does a lot of good work, and has actually been pushing a lot of important action. Um, around, uh, you know, acknowledgement of the atrocities occurring in Xinjiang. So um, you've got a saint, a former ambassador slash uh, wine uh, entrepreneur and an Aussie Labor senator, mate. So, you know, it's a, it's a good mix, no doubt. Great. Barbecues at mine are always a great laugh, as you can see. <laughs> <laughs> well, mate, look, uh, Luke, thanks so much for coming on. Congratulations on all the work you've been doing to date and uh, keep it up and we'll hope to stay in touch. Pleasure to talk to you, mate. Thank you very much. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. Uh, big thanks again to Luke for coming on the show and do check out Luke's work around the place. He's doing some outstanding things. Now, question time as ever. Question this time is from Chris. Chris asks, Nisha, do you agree with Tony Blair's assessment of the problems with UK labour? Are the implications for Australian labour? So a little bit of context to this. So Tony Blair wrote a essay in the New Statesman um, shortly after uh, a by-election in the United Kingdom um, where the seat of Hartlepool uh, where UK Labor was beaten in a seat that it has not lost maybe ever or at least not for like 100 years or something. Fact check me, uh, anybody that's got their phone in front of them. Um, it's been a long time. It's in this so-called red wall area. So traditional Labor seat, working class area, uh, socially conservative, um, uh, Labor type voters, traditional base voters. Um, so for the first time ever, uh, they've gone and voted for the Tory party. So it sends sort of shockwaves uh, through the party. And it, you know, so it continues on um, a very bad result by Labor um, in uh, in the uh, general election um, under uh, you know under uh, the, f- the previous leader Jeremy Corbyn, um, and it's obviously a shocking outcome. And it's uh, you know UK Labor's in a really tough spot. It's lost all of Scotland to the uh, SNP, the National Party, Scottish National Party, and it's losing its Northern England seats as well. So really tough spot. It's in Tony Blair wrote a pretty stinging rebuke about where UK Labor's at. And certainly a lot of people dislike Tony Blair, but um, you know, I'm, a, you know, I'm a fan of his purely by the fact that he's the only Labor leader that's won an election in UK for 50 years. Um, so he actually knows a thing or two. Now, his critique, I think, is very good at diagnosing the problem. Um, he talks a lot about the challenge of tech and Labor providing challenges to you know technological disruption. Doesn't offer a lot in the solutions, but he sort of diagnoses the problem very well. He also talks about the fact that, um, you know, progressive... Um, uh, obsession with sort of identity type questions makes it more challenging um, to make your arguments um, in the economic space, which I think is right. And he talks about the value of patriotism, which I've previously written about. Check out my podcast um, on that, or check out some of my writings on that. Um, but uh, you know, the uh, you know the the, the the challenges there are really strong. 
Um, and we definitely are seeing those problems here. Uh, you know, we've seen that manifest in the 2019 election where Labor swings against it um, um, in, in traditional working class seats. And, uh, you know, we saw that again in the Hunter by-election. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar, Labor just had a, a state Labor had a by-election where we polled um, at a record low. We had 20% primary give or take, but the, the, it was a nine or eight and a nine percent swing against Labor Party there too. So concerning, um, yeah, and so how do we address that challenge? Well, is a the challenge for Labor. How do we connect with communities? I think it can be done. Um, I think we sometimes make it too hard. I think it certainly can be done, but check out the things that I've written in the right stuff. Check out some of my op-eds um, in the Daily Telegraph and other places for my view of these things, because I won't read it out all here, but I think that it is the challenge. I think Tony Blair is right, uh, but we do need to um, connect with those communities, but at the same time, not do it to the consequence, you know, not to the exclusion um, of important progressive ideas. Um, so, uh, yep. Without uh, any more jibber-jabber from me, I will see you next time. Thanks for listening. You were just listening to Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag. For more episodes, visit www.diplomates.show or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through any of your favorite podcast channels. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, producer Jim Mintz.